Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library's Writer's Live series. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, this beautiful room that you're in, and I want to welcome each and every one of you here this evening. Our guest author this evening is Joan Quigley, and she's not to be mistaken for the astrology to Mrs. Ronald Reagan. Joan Quigley is an attorney and journalist. She is the author of two books, Just Another Southern Town, Mary Church Terrell, and The Struggle for Racial Justice in the Nation's Capital, and The Day the Earth Caved In, an American Mining Tragedy um, from Random House. She received the 2005 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award, administered by Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and the Neiman Foundation at Harvard a graduate of Princeton, William & Mary Law School, and Columbia Journalism School. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Time.com, NationalGeographic.com, and the Daily Beast. So we welcome her here this evening to talk about this great work about one of my favorites, Mary Church Terrell. So please join me in welcoming Joan Quigley to Pratt and the African American Department. Good evening. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming. Thank you for your interest and for being here tonight. Um, it's, and thank you for a wonderful and very gracious introduction. This is a beautiful room and a wonderful library. And I am so happy to be here um, to talk about Mary Church Terrell, to talk about civil rights, um, and hopefully really uh, to have a, a conversation. I would love it if um, there were questions tonight from all of you or any of you who have experiences or thoughts, ideas, reactions, anything you'd like to share. One of the things that I've found so interesting and, um, and rewarding about working on this book has been not just going to places and hearing myself talk, but is hearing from people who are drawn to the subject, who are passionate um, about history, about American history, about civil rights, and, and about uh, African-American history and Mary Church Charles. So I look forward, hopefully, uh, to just hearing from you. Um, and feel free to interrupt any time, um, any, any, any point in the way. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. I am a, a non-practicing lawyer, so uh, standing up and giving a book talk in some cases is like doing an oral argument in a court. And it's always great as a lawyer, if any of you are, you know this, if you're in front of a court when they start asking you questions, because then you really get to engage with the material instead of just hearing yourself talk. Um, and also, full disclosure, I am from the Washington area. That's where my home is now uh, in Montgomery County. But I did live in Baltimore for three years, uh, very early in my uh, legal career. So... Um, it's just, it's a great, it's a great sense of homecoming for me uh, to be back here and to be in this wonderful resource. Uh, so, uh, Mary Churchill, how and why uh, did I get interested in this topic? Um, and it started for me when I heard about the case that she brought in the Supreme Court, which itself got started on January 27, 1950, a couple blocks from the White House. She walked into a restaurant, a cafeteria, uh, Thompson's Restaurant, it was called, just close to the Treasury Department. 
And she went with two friends, two colleagues, who were also activists in Washington at the time, and a white man. Uh, the three of them were African-American, and she went with a white man who was a Quaker. And the four of them went to this restaurant, not because they expected to be served. It was 1950 in Washington. Jim Crow was the rule. Restaurants, movie theaters, hotels, businesses, the downtown area was segregated. They went knowing that in all likelihood they wouldn't be served. And they went to the restaurant that day uh, with the idea of taking what they expected, a refusal from the restaurant to accommodate them, and taking that action into court. Now, by way of very brief background, this was six years before Rosa Parks sparked the Montgomery bus boycott. This was 10 years before sit-ins started at lunch counters across the South. This was 1950. And the restaurant refused to serve them. She took the case to court, uh, and for the next three and a half years, it wound its way through the local courts in Washington all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, on June 8, 1953, gave her a unanimous decision, eight to nothing, invalidating restaurant segregation in the nation's capital. This was a year before Brown versus Board of Education. Washington, D.C., in 1950, at the beginning of the Cold War, this is just after World War II, and Washington was the headquarters of global democracy. Talk about branding. Washington, D.C. was the centerpiece of the post-war global brand of democracy. And she and her colleagues knew that it had become an embarrassment, a global embarrassment. It had been for decades. Going back to slavery, which was originally legal in Washington until 1850, this tension between having first a capital of the entire United States that had slavery and the slave trade, and after 1850, uh, a capital of the United States that embodied the Southern culture of Jim Crow. By the end of World War II, after two world wars in which African Americans had fought bravely in segregated units, a group of activists, and Mary Church Troll was one of them, focused on Washington, D.C. for that very reason. It had just become untenable to have the national headquarters of democracy treating whites and blacks differently, saying, you can go here, but because you're black, you cannot, all within the shadow of the Capitol and the Supreme Court, which decided her case, and Congress. That was the reality and had been the reality, um, as, as we all know, in the Deep South and in, the, and in just down the road. And Baltimore, too. I mean, I know Baltimore has its own history and Thurgood Marshall as well. But her case, uh, which was District of Columbia versus Thompson Restaurants, not as well known as Brown. Um, and I was curious, why? As someone who had been to law school, as someone who at one point in my life thought I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, wh when I first read about her and the case that she brought and the timing of it, I was just very curious. Um, why was the Supreme Court unanimous a year before Brown? Was her case some kind of buildup to it? And why wasn't she better known? I mean, more widely known, like Rosa Parks, who came along six years later. The civil rights movement in the South after Brown, of course, is incredibly important. And 
the, the pivotal battles in Selma and Alabama and Mississippi, um, Freedom Summer. But I had the feeling, uh, as a researcher just getting started, that somehow her case was important in the buildup and somehow had been eclipsed um, by Brown when that came along. So that was how I got interested in her story. Um, the other two questions of why wasn't she better known and what made her do it. She was 86 years old when she walked into that restaurant in January of 1950. She was born in the year of the Emancipation Proclamation, 1863, in Memphis. And she died a few months after Brown. So her life was this whole, uh, she lived civil rights between Emancipation and Brown. Um, and it seemed to me that that made her story also important because getting to the question of what made her do it meant looking at all of the decades uh, and, the, and the history um, leading up to that period of 1950. I could talk just, <laughs> just tonight about, uh, about any of those questions. You know, why isn't she better known? Um, but the one I really sort of want to focus on tonight, to the, to the extent I'm just up here talking, is what made her do it. She had a remarkable background, a remarkable education. Her parents were both slaves, uh, and the sons, the son and daughter of their masters. Her her father, their parents were the offspring of their. Wait, I need to say this correctly. I'm sorry. Uh, both of her parents had been. Uh, children of their white masters. She grew up in great wealth. Uh, her father was an entrepreneur in Memphis. He made a lot of money uh, and surrounded his family with great luxury. But her parents divorced when she was young. And they believed in education, her mother in particular, and sent her north to Ohio, to Oberlin College. Uh, the school, first to the public schools in Ohio and public school in Oberlin, and then to Oberlin, where she enrolled in 1880. Um, and she graduated four years later, 1884. There were two other African-American women in her class. And they weren't the first, because Oberlin had, some of you may know this already, Oberlin was um, co-educational when it opened in 1833, a leader in educated women. And then in 1835, two years later, accepted African-American students. So by the time she came along, uh, after Reconstruction, after the Civil War, there had already been 30 African-American women who graduated from Oberlin. So it's an incredibly, it's a, a progressive school committed to educating women, committed to educating African-Americans. And when she was there as a younger girl, before she enrolled in college, it was also still, I think, uh, affected very much by this progressive energy. It had been an abolitionist hotbed. It was a station on the Underground Railroad. Some of John Brown's raiders, three of them, I believe, who went with him to Harper's Ferry in 1859 were from Oberlin. John Brown was the son of an Oberlin College trustee. So Oberlin, where she lived and then graduated from college, uh, I think had a profound influence on who she was and who she became. Her husband, by contrast, uh, Robert Terrell, went to Harvard. They graduated from college on the exact same day, June of 1884. And he had, his parents were uh, in Virginia, slaves in Virginia, then the family went to Washington. He actually went to Boston as a teenager to work as a waiter. 
in the undergraduate dining hall at Harvard, which is called Memorial Hall. And roughly 10 years later, he graduated uh, in the same building at the opposite end in Sanders Theater, and he was selected to give a speech at commencement. So by the time he graduated, he had already been the subject of national news, the Washington Post, Saturday Evening Post. They knew about him. They were an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, couple uh, who met as teachers in Washington, D.C. They got married, and they stayed there, and he became appointed as a judge by Teddy Roosevelt in 1901. So she came to Washington out of Oberlin, out of Ohio, originally Memphis, she came to Washington as a stranger. He had basically grown up there and then through politics was enmeshed. Uh, they both knew Booker T. Washington. They knew President Ro Theodore Roosevelt, who appointed her husband to his judgeship. They knew William Howard Taft. They knew African-American uh, politicians from Reconstruction who were friends of her father, friends of her husband. They knew Frederick Douglass. They were very much the African-American power couple in Washington uh, at the turn of the 20th century. They were nationally known. She uh, had expected, before she married, to be a writer. And as a married woman was frustrated, she wasn't teaching. Uh, she had great expectations, great education. And so she used her education, she used what she knew, her, her, her very strongly held beliefs about women's equality and racial equality out on the lecture circuit. And she became a writer as well, uh, rode the Chautauqua circuit, gave speeches. She was internationally known uh, in the early 1900s. She gave a speech in Berlin. She came back. Frederick Douglass's son sent a letter to her husband saying, she's the greatest woman we have. Um, <coughs> so she's very entrepreneurial. What we would say today is she was working across multiple platforms. She was speaking. She was writing. She was out on the road traveling, spreading the word about the subjects she cared about, which were equality, racial equality, uh, the rollback, Reconstruction era rollback in rights for African Americans. She was traveling in the South on trains. And at the turn of the 20th century, when southern states started passing Jim Crow laws, she w was being told to move to the Jim Crow car. This is what she was living uh, when she was out on the road. Now, Given her prominence, given really the international reputation and standing she had, she was a natural person to be a charter member of the NAACP. And she was invited to be a charter member in 1909. But it was a frustrating experience for her. She didn't have a role as a leader. She didn't have a role as a speaker. Uh, it wasn't like an organization she had helped form in 1896, the National Association of Colored Women. That organization, 15 years before the NAACP, was African-American women, uh, organized a few months after Plessy v. Ferguson, which was a Supreme Court case, of course, uh, announcing that there could be segregated railway cars. The National Association of Women, as a contrast to the NAACP, African-American women from around the country, they one of the first things they did after they organized in Washington, D.C., was to go to Harper's Ferry. And they posed for a photograph outside John Brown's fort. Now, I don't know if that decision to make that trip, to pose for that photograph, I don't know that that was Mary Church Charles idea, but certainly given the, the resonance in her life of Oberlin and John Brown, uh, agitation, in his case, 
abolitionist agitation. In her case, agitation for civil rights, that's kind of where it began. That was 1896, the same year as Plessy v. Ferguson. So NAACP, 1909, not, uh, by comparison, a much more restricted role than the one she had helped carve for herself as the first president of the NACW. I mentioned before that she wanted to be a writer. Um, And for decades, while she was out on the speaking trail, uh, the the lecture circuit, uh, she kept diaries, she wrote correspondence, and time and again you can see her sort of lamenting that she's never written a book. Uh, It was just something she'd always wanted to do. And when her husband died in 1923, I believe it was, He'd had a sort of a couple strokes, prolonged decline, difficult last few years. Um, had managed to be a judge uh, up until his death, so for more than 20 years. But right after he died, virtually right after he died, she started working on her memoirs. And that project became something that engaged her uh, from the mid-1920s until about 1940. But she had a struggle having... She she struggled with how much to reveal. Would she be honest about the things that she had experienced, for example, Jim Crow cars? Uh, Or would she focus on the opportunities she had had, like Oberlin? And she decided, apparently, um, to focus on the opportunities. Now, that meant that the great opportunity to tell her life story. When, when she realized it in her memoirs, it was one-sided. Um, and publishers said that they, they didn't think it would find an audience. Um, it was rejected time and time again by publishers. She decided to self-publish in 1940, I mean, way ahead of her time. She self-published the memoirs and got H.G. Wells, the British author, to write an introduction. He didn't rave. Uh, He said it was rambling. And picking up on that struggle that I think as a writer, he could see what she had struggled with internally. She said that, in essence, he said she was too discreet. There was a discreet faltering from explicitness was his term. She was reluctant, um, for very understandable reasons, to go into detail. Um, about some of the experiences she had had as an African-American woman. And also, understandably, she was very proud of what she had accomplished, about having graduated from Oberlin and about having given lectures abroad and all over the country. Uh, but it meant, as, as, a, as a work of memoir, uh, she didn't find a home for it in traditional publishers. She self-published her memoirs in the fall of 1940, and at that same time, Oberlin comes back into the story through a friend of hers by the name of of Nettie Swift. Nettie was a year ahead of her at Oberlin and moved to Washington. Now, at this point, they're in their 70s. Nettie moved to Washington to be near her family. And they reacquainted themselves. And Nettie, uh, as an Oberlin graduate, belonged to an organization in Washington, the branch of the American Association of University Women, which you might guess from the name, is an organization that existed for women who had graduated 
from American universities. As long as the school was accredited, the national organization said women could join. Nettie moved to Washington, joined the Washington branch. Nettie went to Oberlin. Mary Church Turrell went to Oberlin. When Mary Church Turrell applied, she was rejected. The only difference was that Nettie was white. And that incident, that refusal, dragged on in court for more than three years. And in 1949, in June, the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, one level below the Supreme Court, the Federal Court of Appeals for Washington, D.C., sided with the Washington branch. And it upheld the right of the AAUW to exclude African Americans in the D.C. branch. When I started seeing a lot of references in her papers, correspondence to the AAUW and this long, protracted fight, at first I didn't get it. But then, looking at the chronology, I realized that was it. That was the last straw. Because ten, roughly 10 days after the federal court said it was okay for the D.C. branch to discriminate against African-American women. She gave a speech in New York. She was at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. She cited Frederick Douglass. Again, going, going back to uh, Oberlin, to, to Washington, D.C., to knowing Frederick Douglass, she said, and I'm paraphrasing, and I have the exact quotes in the book, but she said, people are afraid to be agitators. Now, this is 1949. This is the beginning of the McCarthy era, almost, after the war, um, she said, people are afraid to be called agitators. But people called Frederick Douglass an agitator. And she said, it's time to send a message to the world that we are tired of being pushed around. Seven months after she gave that speech at the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, she walked into that cafeteria in Washington, D.C. And one thing uh, led to the other. Um, I think that outright uh, discrimination, that re rejection from an organization that was designed <laughs> for exactly who she was, a college-educated woman. When she didn't get in there, I th uh, she decided she had, you know, one more battle. And that's what the, that's what the case against the cafeteria really was. Um, it was, after a lifetime of thinking and speaking and talking about civil rights, uh, this was her, her, her last push. And while the case was making its way up to the Supreme Court, which took more than three years, um, she was out on the streets and sidewalks in Washington, D.C. She was picketing and protesting. She had a committee of people who helped her, progressives, women, men, uh, one communist, um, very progressive attorneys. She worked outside the NAACP. Her lawyers were not from the NAACP. They were progressive whites. And while the case is working its way up to the courts, she's picketing in front of dime stores, five and ten cent stores, downtown Washington, near the Verizon Center, what's now the Verizon Center. If they had a segregated lunch counter, she and her colleagues and the committee would try to get them to integrate it. If they didn't, picket line. Uh, they got a Kreskis to integrate after a photograph of her ran in the Afro-American, the, the black press, 
a photograph of her on the picket line wearing a winter coat, carrying a sign, wearing her, you know, her lace-up Oxford shoes, and saying, you know, boycott, the, the sign is basically saying boycott Kreskis. And roughly two weeks after that photograph ran in the Afro, uh, the store caved and said, okay, we're going to integrate. They moved on. They went to Hex, the department store, the Baltimore ownership, Baltimore founders. Um, and Hex, again, same area, right across the street. If you've been to the Verizon Center in D.C., that building was right across the street. Segregated lunch counter in the basement. Tried to work with the company to integrate. They refused. Eight-month boycott. Josephine Baker came in, gave a, gave a performance in Washington, went down beforehand, went to the, the Hex lunch counter, and was refused service. And then she talked about it that night uh, at her concert in Washington. After an eight-month boycott, Hex caved, uh, and they decided to integrate their lunch counter. But, and then she took on another uh, segregated lunch counter at a different dime store in Washington. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating combination um, of experiencing the discrimination, deciding to file a test case that would go all the way to the Supreme Court, and then also being out on the sidewalks and in the streets. Um, nonviolent, uh, definitely uh, what we think of as, as and what is nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, and so by the time the Supreme Court actually decided to hear her case in April 1953, there was a new president in the White House, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And politically, the, the stars aligned for her as well. Uh, in his inaugural address, he promised to integrate Washington. He knew. He was a former military person. It was obvious to the State Department that having a segregated capital was a liability. And so this was a point he made in his first uh, inaugural speech in February. Two months later, the Supreme Court took her case. Because he gave them political cover, it's hard to say for sure, but certainly the timing is pretty great. And then two months later, Two months after they took the case, out comes this decision. That's an incredibly fast timetable. That meant within two months, from April to June, the attorneys did the briefing, did the oral argument, and the Supreme Court released its unanimous opinion. At the same time, internally, the court was deadlocked about Brown versus Board of Education. The justices had heard oral argument in Brown and the four other school cases, They'd considered it, they'd read the briefs, they'd heard from the lawyers, and they were in essence stalled. Uh, it, was, it was just an en- enormous monumental decision. You can feel them feeling it in their deliberations. And the same day that they decided her case, they scheduled Brown and the four other school cases that were with it for another round of oral argument in the fall. A complete do-over. Thurgood Marshall canceled his summer vacation plans, and so did the attorneys who worked with him, because all of a sudden, after doing one round of briefs and all arguments, they were back at it again. And what that tells me is that although the justices were, in essence, stalled, they hadn't coalesced internally about how to deal with the big, complicated, uh, and almost frightening, I think, for them, decision on integrated public schools, which they viewed very... Uh, in a very nitty-gritty way, uh, this is directing school children 
black and white to sit side by side. They couldn't coalesce about how to, dissolve, how to resolve that issue. But at the same time, they were able to take hers quickly, resolve it quickly, and send out a unanimous decision. Why? I, I mean, why is that, really? And I would think it all goes back to Washington, D.C., and the symbolic importance of that city. The justices had been told in briefs from the Justice Department that it was a liability to have a segregated capital. They knew it from reading the briefs. They also knew it because they lived and worked in Washington, D.C. Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was on the court, who was one of the justices who decided Mary Church Charles' case, was the first justice to hire an African-American law clerk. He did that in 1949. And his law clerk, the first African-American clerk ever to work on the United States Supreme Court, couldn't go to lunch with his white co-clerks on the court because they went to the Mayflower Hotel. And one of his co-clerks called ahead, and the Mayflower said it wouldn't serve an African-American. So this co-clerk kind of feigned an excuse and said to Felix's Felix Frankfurter's other clerk, we're going to Union Station instead because that was one of the places uh, that would serve on an integrated basis that would serve blacks and whites. So this, this issue of segregation in Washington resonated through the lives of the, well, certainly through the life of Felix Frankfurter. He knew what had happened to his clerk during his year of working in Washington. Uh, and segregation in the capital itself, as a matter of history, was the basis as a, as a straightforward legal rationale, was what the court used all the way back in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. The court had said in that decision, as its justification, there are segregated schools in Washington, D.C. Congress, which controls Washington, has jurisdiction over it under the Constitution, has segregated the schools in Washington. And the court's reasoning was, surely... If Congress can segregate the schools in Washington, D.C., then Louisiana can segregate railway passengers. So that brought segregation and the foundation, the edifice of segregation, if you look at it that way, was Washington, D.C. That was the rationale for Plessy. That was the rationale for separate but equal on Jim Crow. And this wasn't a point, as far as I could see, in the briefs in Mary Church Charles' case, it wasn't a specific point in the opinion that decided her case, but it's hard to imagine <laughs> that it wasn't important to the Supreme Court in the spring of 1853 to send out this signal. They said, we're still stalled on school segregation. We, we're not there yet. Give us more briefs and another argument. But they sent the signal about Washington, D.C., and the signal was, it's over. Jim Crow's over. And a year later, that was Brown. That was the decision. How yeah. Washington Great question. Um, within days, restaurants started serving everyone. There was no violence. There was no unrest. The D.C. commissioners met the day of the decision. One of them went on television they were in charge of the city. They were presidentially appointed. There were no elected officials. But they, so they ran the city. And one of the commissioners said, the police, I, I, I believe it was he, um, but in essence, the 
said the police are going, this is the law, the police are going to start enforcing it. Within a few days, the police, it was a criminal statute that was at the basis of her opinion that said, dated back to Reconstruction, restaurants can't refuse to serve African Americans. It was an anti-discrimination law, um, which had never been, in, which had rarely been enforced for 70 years. And that's what her lawsuit did, was to revive these. So the police said, we're going to enforce it. They started enforcing it. The Washington Post, every, you know, virtually every day is saying there hasn't been any unrest. There hasn't been any protest. The restaurants, who had collectively fought her case for three and a half years, capitulated. The Restaurant Association said the Supreme Court has decided it's the rule of the law. You know, it's, that's the rule. It's the law. And the Restaurant Association sent out the word to its members, it's time to serve everyone. And within a few days, they did. And Mary Church Turrell went back to Thompson's restaurant with some of her colleagues, and they went through the line, just the the cafeteria line, as they had tried to do three and a half years earlier. And this time, instead of being turned away, the manager picked up her tray uh, and carried it to a table. And there were reporters there and photographers and she sat at a table, and she ate her meal, and there was a photograph in the meal that ran in the afro. You know, these are the plates. This is, you know, the sugar dispenser. And a pastor from Washington had gone to watch. Uh, He got to the restaurant before she arrived with her colleagues, and he watched them come through the line, and he said, it's another emancipation. And it had that it had that resonance um, in Washington. I, I, I can't, yes, you have a question. Okay, great question. Um, And and I'll repeat to make sure I get it right. If this were such a narrow decision, just applied in Washington, D.C., why, right? Message. Yeah, why? And and why is it important if it just implied in in Washington, D.C.? I think that that is both why the court took the case. Again, I can't prove it, but I've been through every shred of paper I can find about this case. Um, and we know that there were four justices who wanted to hear it because they took cert in April of 53. And we know they decided it right away. So that, and unanimously. Justice William O. Douglas wrote the opinion, probably the most liberal justice ever to serve on the Supreme Court, at a time when the court was very divided, uh, not just over Brown. It was divided over the Rosenbergs, um, the husband and wife spy case. Uh, it was divided over... Just the whole issue of the Cold War and subversives and cracking down and free speech. This was not a liberal court. They were all democratically appointed justices, either by Truman or Franklin D. Roosevelt. But the 
fact that they were able to get to her case unanimously a year before Brown, I think, is because it was so narrow. The ordinances she was trying to bring back to life, the anti-discrimination laws, only applied in Washington. And it wasn't a constitutional challenge. It wasn't Plessy. It wasn't trying to use the 14th Amendment and the separate but e to, to turn over separate by equal by saying that violates the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. That, that was the theory of Brown and, and any other civil rights cases. That goes back to the brilliant Charles Hamilton Houston, um, whom she knew. But because it was so narrow, it was just this little <laughs> obscure case, not obscure to people in Washington who knew what she was doing, but these obscure ordinances that had just been in dusty law books for 70 years, I mean, prosecutors, it's a southern city, southern culture, um, I think that made it easier for the court both to take it and to decide it. Now they, and I said this earlier, but this, they were being told in briefs that it is bad for this country to have a segregated capital. I mean, the Justice Department was briefing this case and arguing it. Uh, and the other wrinkle in this, and it, and it goes to exactly the question you've raised, is that one of the other four cases with Plessy, there were five, they were bundled together in the court, they went in lockstep, and that made it, that made it hard. Right? One of those five cases was from Washington, D.C. So the court had, at the same time, the issue of the segregated capital through its schools and through its restaurants. But, but the school case raised the whole constitutional question of are we going to overrule Plessy? That is a big deal when the Supreme Court overrules a case. Her case, on the other hand, just these narrow little ordinances, just a technical dry, dry, dry issue, and dry opinion. You can read the opinion in her case, and it doesn't it barely mentions civil rights. It doesn't mention her by name. It's about the driest, it's like reading the manual of a toaster oven. But, sim but the symbolic importance is huge. The symbolic importance resonated across the country and even across the globe. And she knew that when she brought the case, the activists with whom she worked, who had targeted Washington during and after World War II, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, Charles Hamilton Houston, these, Charles, these are people who knew the importance of focusing on the, the original march on Washington, A. Philip Randolph. They knew the strategic importance of Washington. And Thurgood Marshall recognized it too. I mentioned before that he was not involved in her case. The NAACP did not help her. But when the Supreme Court took the case, he tried to get permission uh, to file a friend of the court brief. The lawyers in her case said no, so he went to the court, he and his lawyers, they drafted a five-page document and said, we'd like to brief this case, may we have permission? And one of the things that they, the NAACP from New York pointed out was that her case raised the issue of having a segregated capital. And, if, and that's why it was so important, because if segregation fell in Washington, D.C., in the capital of democracy, that would weaken it everywhere else. Now the court didn't grant his request. They said no to him on briefing the case. But this issue of this being such an important case because it struck at the foundation, um, I, I think that's why it happened. And, I, and the justices were smart too. I, I assume they knew about Plessy and that, that whole rationale of 
Congress segregated DC schools so we can have segregation everywhere else. It just makes sense. No? Yes, hi. Weren't there nine justices? They were only eight then? Ah, good, yes. One of them recused himself. I think he was sick the day of the oral argument, Justice Jackson. Who? Justice uh, Robert Jackson. Jackson from New York? Yes, state. from New York State, and oh, had been the Nuremberg prosecutor. Right. Interesting. He uh, recused himself. Um, or was absent. So the, she was trying to enforce a, a, an ordinance that made it a crime not to serve who? Uh, uh, to, to discriminate by race. I, I, so there was an actual ordinance in yeah. Washington, D.C. that right. made that a crime, but it right. hadn't been enforced. So if her argument wasn't based on Constitution, what was it based on? Just the statute. So the whole issue in the case was these old Reconstruction-era laws that Washington has ignored for decades while it has had segregation, um, are they still valid? Are they still on the books, and have they never been repealed? And the answer was yes. They're still valid. They're still on the books. They were valid when the long-ago legislature, at a time when Washington actually had one, adopted them, and they've never been repealed, and so they're valid and enforceable, and that means restaurant segregation in Washington, D.C. is invalid. So that seems so clear-cut. Why would restaurants allow it to go all the way to the Supreme Court? What was their, what was their argument about why it was an invalid law? The short answer is culture. That was their argument? In no, they were more sophisticated than that. Oh, okay. Um, but it, it became a very technical uh, argument about whether or not this very short-lived Reconstruction-era government in Washington, D.C. had authority to pass civil rights legislation. Mm. This is Reconstruction, and Congress had exclusive jurisdiction over Washington. So the issue, if you want to uphold the civil rights laws that were passed in Reconstruction in Washington, you say, of course the local legislature had the authority to pass this legislation because Congress didn't want to do everything for Washington, D.C. That's why there was a little legislature there, because Congress didn't want to have to deal with garbage and weed disposals and fire regulations and restaurants and all that stuff. So when the local legislature passed these laws, that was okay. Congress was fine with that, because they delegated. If do we know anything about the people who were able to get that ordinance passed during Reconstruction? There's a great book about Washington during Reconstruction. Uh, Kate Mazur wrote it. Um, I think it's called An Example for All the Land. And she's really the expert on uh, Reconstruction-era DC. I think she teaches at Northwestern. Uh, and I relied on that book um, for, uh, for, for just great uh, discussion and treatment of Reconstruction-era history. Uh, and she mentions these laws, these ordinances, they were misdemeanors. It was a misdemeanor if you're a restaurant in Washington, D.C., to discriminate uh, against someone on the basis of race. You know, there are a number of anecdotal occurrences in American history involving this whole issue of slavery and 
black and white and so forth, so forth. My question is a little bit broader here. Okay. And I'm asking, as a black man asking a white woman, what is at the foundation of this, of this race thing? Is it fear of, of, of African-Americans specifically? Is it, uh, is it fear of losing some economic hegemony? Is it fear of, uh, as Dr. Cress Wellesley has proffered, that if we all get together, you all will be bleached away or something or another? What is the basis of this? Here we are in 2016. Again, we're at it. I mean, I don't understand this. I mean, I've lived through it, obviously. I've tried to analyze it. I've talked with white associates. I've gone to school with them. I've slept with them. What is at the basis of this? Wow. Um, thank you. And uh, first of all, I agree. Um, it's, uh, I was born in 1964. I was born a few days before the Civil Rights Act was passed. I grew up in Ohio, in Cleveland, so I never knew Jim Crow. I never knew legalized segregation. I knew segregation by zip code, real estate. Um, and that was Freedom Summer when I was born. That was Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman going missing in Mississippi. I really first learned about the Civil Rights Movement in college. I was a history major. Um, that's when I first saw those images and then Eyes on the Prize. So the idea that I'm standing here in 2016 um, and we are now as a result of what happened last week in Dallas and the back-to-back -back killings in, uh, in St. Paul and Baton Rouge last week, coming on top of everything else, Freddie Gray, all of uh, Ferguson, the idea that we're still here... Um, you know, I think about this a lot. What would Mary Church Turrell think? I think on the one hand, she would be very proud that the Obamas are in the White House. They are you know, the culmination, the validation of her struggle, educated uh, role models. Um, and I also think, again, I'm just speaking as a person, but I also think that, that the activism, um, the intensity of the feelings are coming from young people, college students, who have grown up and come of age with the Obamas in the White House. So when these highly charged racial issues, like the police or on college campuses, uh, I think that impatience is there, right? Like African-American family in the White House, an African-American can be president, but out on the streets, you know, Freddie Gray dies in in custody in a van. Um, so there's anger, which I get. The flip side of it, of course, is the anger on the white side, which is about diminishing opportunities and blame. And that was true in Reconstruction. That was true throughout Mary Church Charles' life. I mean, she made speeches uh, in 1906 talking about it was, it was a famous speech. I write about it in her book. It was called the Servant Girl Speech. 
she saw uh, the retreat from Reconstruction. I mentioned the rise of Jim Crow laws, lynching. You know, she read newspapers from all over the country, so did her husband. She knew what was happening. She may have lived apart from it indirectly in Washington as a, with her husband, but she gave a speech in 1906 in Battle Creek, Michigan, and she uh, had grown very frustrated with President Roosevelt, and in part um, because she thought he had, in essence, turned against African Americans. Uh, the details I, w I won't get into now, but she felt very disappointed, very let down. I think there's some similar feeling about the Obamas now, but um, she said that, uh, and this goes to this na the notion of race, she said that no African-American woman, and I'm paraphrasing, but would l allow her daughter to work in a white man's kitchen. And then she said, well, in some, in some uh, families, in some homes in the South, it wouldn't be safe. Because white women were looking the other way, and there were sexual relations between the white man and the black servant girl. Now, today, you can imagine if she gave a speech like that, um, I think that would be controversial. Then it was national news. Uh, you know, Mary Church Turrell said that no uh, young African-American girl is safe in the home of the white man, and this, she had to explain. No, I didn't really say it in all. It was in some. Uh, but it became a huge controversy. Uh, it may also be why the NAACP was reluctant to give her, there could have been other reasons as well why she didn't have a prominent speaking or leadership role in the NAACP. Um, but she, she was very smart. She was educated, obviously, and outspoken. And she had grown up with great wealth and privilege. And I think that gave her the ability to spend her life um, asking for better treatment expecting and demanding better treatment for women and for African Americans. She had a sense of entitlement, which made her, uh, several decades later, I think, the perfect person to be out in front leading the charge in Washington, D.C. She was respectable. She was dignified. She was 86 years old. She was you know, NAACP, Oberlin College, wife of a Harvard-educated judge. Uh, and she expected better, not just because she had grown up and enjoyed all of these privileges and luxuries in life as a young girl. She just, she was from Oberlin. She knew Frederick Douglass. She expected better. And that was 1950. Yes. I don't know if I've answered your question you at all. Really, no. I haven't. Okay. I tried. <laughs> Do you want us to follow up? Or should we move no, on? Okay. Well, can I, can I, can I weigh in? Sure. Just to, to, to weigh in, because you touched on something that may serve to at least address part of his question. You okay. mentioned a couple of individuals, and I think a lot of this gets lost in the discussion. And you mentioned specifically A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, who a lot of people don't know who the heck they are. But A. Philip Randolph was actually the person who conceived 
the March on Washington Bay at Ruston made it happen. Martin Luther King gave the I Have a Dream speech, but it was not only uh, A. Philip Randolph who conceived it, it was also he who pushed uh, Truman to integrate the armed forces, which is, is, is something else. One of the things that has happened in addition to the attack on black people has been an attack on labor. A. Philip Randolph and one other person that is not, you didn't mention in that equation is Walter Ruther, who was a strong supporter and put the money and weight of the auto workers behind the March on Washington and understood that if you could get working class whites and blacks together, then you have a force that could take on the 1% or the 2% because then you don't. As long as you can keep those two entities at each other, which is where we're at now and where we see certain candidates exploiting these divisions, particularly now with white working class jobs, factories, auto work going overseas. So uh, uh, talk a little bit more about that. You, you mentioned Randolph, you mentioned Rustin, but I think that weighs into the equation that this gentleman was, was talking about in terms of basis of the basis of it, a lot of it is economic and you use these other things to justify it, quite right. frankly. Right, and uh, the, the, the activists, the leaders you mentioned, um, were including the fight for economic justice as part of the fight for civil rights. And she knew them. Um, a. Philip Randolph was inviting her to planning meetings in the early 40s for the, and related to the March on Washington that he was planning as a push, uh, as you mentioned, to integrate the defense industry and the armed sector. So she, she knew him. Bayard Rustin, in 1947, the founder of the Congress of Racial Equality, he started a push to target Washington restaurants and to have sit-in demonstrations in the summer of 1947 in Washington, D.C., so there was, and she was aware of what they were doing. Um, and uh, at that point, I think one of the ways she helped was by talking to the press. And so to giving perspective as the, the doyen, really, the, the matriarch of the civil rights hierarchy in Washington. Um, at that point, still before the AAUW fight, um, she was still a little bit on the, on the supportive role. It really wasn't, she didn't really come out in front until uh, 49.50. But she also knew Charles Hamilton Houston. And it's maybe, maybe you know, so forgive me if I'm telling you things you already know. Charles Hamilton Houston was Thurgood Marshall's mentor, a brilliant Harvard-educated lawyer who was then a dean at Howard University Law School where he taught Thurgood Marshall. And Charles Hamilton Houston uh, practiced law in Washington with his father and took on a lot of civil rights cases. And he was Thurgood Marshall's predecessor and mentor at the NAACP. And it was Charles Hamilton Houston, with his ties to Washington, D.C., having grown up in Washington, D.C., who was the architect of the NAACP's plan for overturning separate but equal. He was the one who said, this is what we do. We go in to court time and time again and we challenge segregation by saying, yeah, it's separate, but it's not equal. And so he started challenging uh, graduate schools. And, and, the end of, and Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP carried on without him. He, he did it for a few years. And then he came back to Washington and did civil rights work. And he 
was a big believer in economic justice. Back in the New Deal, he'd been organizing protests in Washington, which included uh, labor, because he believed, as did A. Philip Randolph, that having good jobs was essential um, to, to dignity and equality. Um, and he also was challenging restaurant segregations in Washington, D.C. At the very end of his life, he died before she started her challenge. Uh, so she's very much a part of the mix of these, this, this active, at the time, young generation of committed activists who came out of the labor tradition, who believed in economic justice, and, and targeting lunch counters in Washington, D.C., I think is also an issue of economic justice because who goes to lunch counters? Well, people who work or women who are shopping with their children to buy school supplies. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a nitty-gritty issue when, when you think about it, when you're talking about striking at lunch counters. Uh, and I think that had to have resonated with her, too, as a woman. Like, this is, of course, school integration was hugely important and all that litigation, but she was also working uh, outside that mainstream, and, and it does tie back directly to, uh, to those activists in labor. Does the decision become uh, a precedent uh, between 53, between, does the decision become a precedent between 1953 and the public accommodations law? Was it 64, I think, when that was uh, passed? Or in the thinking of a, a person like uh, Bobby Kennedy as Attorney General? Uh, I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know whether Bobby Kennedy knew about her case. Uh, the, the Attorney General for Eisenhower, was a gentleman by the name of Herbert Brownell. He came out of New York, maybe was born in Nebraska, Yale Law School, you know, white shoe law firm profile practice in New York. And uh, on one of his first days in Washington, he saw an African-American family being refused service at a restaurant. Um, and his Justice Department briefed her case. Uh, but until then, Late in the Truman administration, I think one Justice Department filing appeared in her case. Um, but the Eisenhower administration, you know, does, it gets credit, as it should, down the road for sending federal troops. Uh, but it was here in this case, too. It was here. I mean, it was involved in her case as well. What about restaurants in general as opposed to lunch counters? Were fancy restaurants included or not? Uh, for the most part, yes. Um, I mentioned Union Station. Union Station was integrated, served black and white, blacks and whites. And under Franklin Roosevelt, uh, his administration very quietly integrated federal government cafeterias. <clears throat> the federal government had been segregated by Woodrow Wilson's administration. Uh, so for the most part in Washington, uh, there was wholesale exclusion of blacks. Yeah, I, maybe I wasn't clear. Did the Mary Church Terrell case and the old Reconstruction law affect fancy restaurants or only lunch counters? Everything. It meant all restaurants in Washington had to integrate. So it meant the Mayflower Hotel. And by that point, I think she had successfully already integrated all the lunch counters. So that had already happened. Piecemeal. Which, uh, 
department store was so shocking. Garfinkel's department store, a block and a half from the White House, was so shockingly slow with integration. I went to work there selling at Christmas time of 76 and stayed over a year. And that January and February of 77, I learned that a bunch of these very, very, very lovely middle-aged black ladies who were scattered around the store as salespeople had not been allowed as longtime Garfinkel's employees to sell on the floor until 1972. They had been in the folding room, folding in you know, straightening merchandise, cleaning merchandise, shipping it, but were not a block and a half from the White House allowed to sell on the floor until the year of the Nixon-McGovern election, just to put it in context. Wow. I, I, thank you. Um, that is not something I had heard. And the cafeteria uh, is about a block and a half from Garfinkel's on 14th Street. We have time for one last question. Sure. Uh, you're a lawyer for your company, people trying to drive a point home. Yeah. Um, when we were in school, this is the 60s, at Morgan and University of Maryland, everybody was reading France Fanon, black psychiatrist out of, uh, I believe, originally born in the Caribbean, uh, educated in, I believe, British schools, um, I think his graduate education, I believe, in London, whatever. In a nutshell, much of what Dr. Fanan was saying was that racism was a psychiatric problem, not a psychological problem, not a sociological problem, not a necessarily economic problem, even though it came down to all of those things. It was a psychiatric problem. My question, is it a psychiatric problem for whites? Uh, psychiatric. Um, well, my, my gut instinct is to say yes. What comes to mind is the great dissenting opinion that Justice Harlan wrote in Plessy v. Ferguson. He was the only justice who dissented. He was out of Kentucky. Um, and he said basically, nobody is going to be fooled by this decision. Every, I, I'm paraphrasing, and his words are so wonderful, but he said, everybody knows what's going on here. That this separation uh, between black passengers and white passengers by Louisiana in railway cars is designed to send a badge of inferiority. He was white. This was 1896. I think he fought for, he fought for the Union, which is kind of interesting for someone from Kentucky. But he was a former slave owner. Right. A very complicated figure. Thank you. Um, Does that suggest he, as a peer, as a contemporary from the South, a white man on the court serving with eight justices who upheld segregation, did he see something there? I think that's the closest I can come to an answer. 
I think I could just add one thing, comment to this gentleman. The Episcopal Church has been doing a lot of education on racism and seeing the face of God in all people, and it has defined racism as a sickness. So I think the Episcopal Church should sure uphold that, that diagnosis. lacking the education because in Europe the thing looks differently there is no such a you know difference between blacks and white they are more accepted and uh, there is no problems like we are you know having here and starting with education and molding you know the young mind from the beginning it may actually you know make a lot of changes You're in charge. Okay, well, <laughs> we're going to end this. Let's thank Joan Quigley for that wonderful presentation. We do have books for sale, so please purchase her books, and she will be signing her books at the table here. So thank you again for that wonderful presentation, and thank, thank you, you all for coming to Pratt Library.